Welcome back to another episode of Fantastic Voyage, the David Bowie podcast. I'm Jesse. And I'm John. Today we're talking about, uh, which album are we talking about? Is this his 10th studio album? 10th studio album, Station to Station, uh, 1976. Uh, recorded in 75, though. Uh, this came out very early in seven, it was like January or January something January like 23rd, yeah. 76, but... The the Bowie we're talking about is 1975 Bowie, fresh off recording his or filming his first feature film, The Man Who Fell to Earth, which will be our next episode. I'm looking forward to that. I actually started watching it the other day, but fell asleep. <laughs> I haven't watched it in a few years. Um, I think I watched it shortly after he died. So what's that? Six years ago? Wow. So, is it really? Hey, wow. Yeah. yeah. So I look forward to getting back to that. Yeah, it's it's a trip. <laughs> yeah, I've I've only seen it once before too. Uh, I'm yeah, I'm looking forward to to that episode. But today we're talking station to station, and well, I had red peppers for supper today. No joke. Uh, like safe to say that Bowie did pretty much every day that he was recording this, isn't it? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a low point in his life, isn't it? I mean, uh, yeah, his diet, obviously, I mean, we've heard that a thousand times, right? It was just milk and peppers and, and cocaine. And uh, I guess, you know, we kind of mentioned when we were discussing Young Americans that he was also growing increasingly and kind of unreasonably paranoid, you know, with things like his swimming pool were haunted. And uh, it's a period that's become a bit of an urban legend. Like, a lot of these stories, I think, are half-truths or half of them are truths, but... One thing that's that's for certain is he's he's growing increasingly and disturbingly fascinated with like fascism and Nazi memorabilia as well, and you know that's certainly given this period and this album a, a bit of a notorious reputation. I guess the most famous incident being the Victoria Station incident, where he's 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 come back from the UK and, and upon arrival he's allegedly gone as far as giving the crowd a Nazi salute, but. I don't know about you, but I, I've always assumed that I think it's basically accepted as fact now that he was kind of just waving. Yeah, there's all there's more photos that eventually surface that shows that he was clearly waving. And yeah. he, he, he wouldn't have done that. <laughs> he just wouldn't have. I guess the one thing I will say is that I, I also can't really muster up any degree of sympathy for him, though, at the same time. Because, you know, when people misinterpret things like that, it's because he said that, you know, Hitler was as good as Jagger and that America needed fascism and, you know... If people start misidentifying things like waving as being a Nazi salute, that's kind of your own fault. You know, they only arrived upon that conclusion because of some of the heinous shit you've said and done. Uh, so it, it's kind of a, a well-earned blemish on his career that he's just going to have to live with. Or I, I guess he's dead now, but you know, his legacy will <laughs> well, we'll have to live with it. And, and he spent a, a long time, like the better part of a decade, kind of explaining himself that, like, look, I was out of it and, you know, it was documented and... You know, he he was repenting for for everything he said for for quite some time because I think he felt like it was a yeah a blemish on his on his character really. Uh, but it was really kind of just he he was reading a lot of really weird stuff like on the occult and secret histories of Christianity and stuff, and it it seeped into you know his interviews and I guess just kind of what he was and. Uh, ultimately the music as well. I mean, there's a reason why he had to kind of break free from LA after this and take refuge in Berlin. It's because he was, he was kind of losing it. Yeah. And, uh, when you're thankfully he got out of that because that would have been an unfortunate, you know, sort of, it would have been very unfortunate for him to continue down that path. Right. And coming off a number one hit in the U S you know, it, it's going to be, you're in the public eye and it's going to be documented. And yeah, it luckily, Somehow, he managed to make one of the greatest albums of all time during this without a doubt uh, period. I can't remember the exact quote because I haven't uh, watched that five years documentary since I think it was when we did the Hunky Dory episode, which was some time ago. But Earl Slick, who's back on guitar for this album, I I love that he said something along the lines of, "Yeah, you know, we we were messed up or whatever, but whatever your idea of messed up is, we were still able to record this." Maybe we were met, but like we did this though, you know. Yeah. So there's, there's still functioning at some capacity. Yeah, <laughs> you know. So the album peaked at number three in the U.S., number five in the U.K. 
Uh, in Canada, number two. Should have looked up what number one was. That would have been a oh, great... charted higher in Canada than... Charted higher in Canada, yeah. Anywhere else. Interesting. Wow. Yeah, anywhere else. Uh, so We've got taste. Canada Lakes... You know what? This is a very wintry album. We're in the middle of winter here in Winnipeg, and perfect time to listen to this. I find this to be a very cold album. I feel cold when I listen to it. Yeah, most of Bowie's albums are, but this one in particular yeah. is probably the coldest. So we've got Roy Bitten on piano replacing Mike Garson, who departs now for two decades almost. Well, 15-ish years, I guess we could say, is right? Block tie white noise is when we hear from him next? Yeah, he's on, I think, one or two from that. Buddha of Suburbia, he comes back. Yeah, so he's not on a f- full album, basically, until outside, I think. He's featured on a few he's songs before that. that. One. Yeah. yeah. Well, he, Bowie claimed that Garson isn't on this album, because, or, or for the next few albums, for that matter, because he was off being a Scientologist somewhere, but Garson kind of has a different story. He says that that's not necessarily the case, it's just that he never heard from Bowie. And I mean, given David's shoddy track record of handling his musicians and his ex-musicians and all that, I think I believe Garson versions of those events. But. Yeah, and Bowie once said himself much later that uh, if you're ever trying to isolate yourself from your friends, family, and close acquaintances, fellow bandmates, uh, cocaine's the drug to do it mm. with. So, <laughs> yeah, I might see... I think Bowie might have been in the wrong there, maybe, or, yeah, I, you know, just not to slight Roy Bitten uh, and his playing on this because it's all. it's great, yeah. but I would have loved to have heard Garson on this album. Well, because this is sort of like a, you know, it's it's a, a new romantic kind of thing. It's a very European feel that this album has, and that the Thin White Duke persona is. Uh, it, particularly songs like Wild as the Wind. It's just, it, there's something about some of the aesthetics to some of these songs where they just seem like they would really be in Garson's wheelhouse. Yeah. But it's not like Roy Bitten is, is any slouch. No, uh, The Professor uh, from Bruce Springsteen and the East Street Band fame, uh, he survived the cuts when, when Bruce cut the band loose uh, for, I guess, Tunnel of Love. He, he kept Roy Bitten. He was the only surviving member for, I guess, years. I guess he was still with them when they brought him back. So it's his Garson. It's his Garson. There you go. Well, I mean, Bowie kind of lied about wanting him for the next 20 years. Right, yeah. He's going to cut him out of his life for 20 years, but (laughs) then get him back. Another little tidbit. uh, Bitten played the piano on a great piano song, uh, Bad Out of Hell. Right, the the following year, I guess. Yeah. Been in Meatloaf just recently. Since our last episode, he passed away. Yeah. And Bowie was... uh, It's no surprise that... Bitten is who replaces Garden because Bowie is a fan of the Springsteen and the E Street Band, right? Yes. Like he yeah. covered uh, growing up during the Diamond Dog sessions. Uh, Ronnie Wood of the Faces and Rolling Stones actually plays on that, and he also did "It's Hard to Be a Saint in the City" during the Young American sessions. Yeah. So there's rumor that he did "Spirit in the Night" too. I think uh, it may have been a total throwaway, or may have done. I don't think he did it live, but I think he that was part of what would have been his American pinups had he ever put that right, together. Right, right. Yeah, yeah I've, I've read that too. Yeah. yeah. We've uh, got a new bass player, right? Yeah. George Murray. Now, that's someone who's sort of flown under the radar in Bowie lore despite being such a prominent figure. Uh, like, There's usually articles and interviews featuring all of his collaborators, but Murray rarely pops up, and it's kind of a shame because he had some very... Very tasty bass playing. I think my favorite bass line of his is probably on the next album. I think Sound and Vision is, is a massive feat. But yeah. he, he's still great on this record. And I, maybe it's because he didn't really collaborate with many other people other than Bowie that he kind of has been you know swept under the rug and forgotten. But he, he's a very welcome addition to this rhythm section because the rhythm section on this album really holds things together. And that's with Dennis Davis uh, back on drums. And, oh, and Alomar's back uh, with Slick. So uh, two <laughs> very, very good guitarists on this album. And it shines because, yeah, I absolutely love the guitar work on this. The whole album is just great uh, in, in so many different ways, too, uh, mm-hmm. as, we'll, as we'll get into when we get to the tracks. I would say also that, like, more important than any new musician on this album, I think, are the emergence of groups like Kraftwerk and Ken and Noi and, and their influence on Bowie as a songwriter. 
uh, you know, those are all kind of like krautrock artists. And uh, krautrock is a very fascinating genre. It's a bit of a, a vague term that I'm sure a lot of those groups probably don't always appreciate being thrown in the same box together. But what they all share is they they take the energy of like Anglo-American rock music, but then draw inspiration from unconventional sources, like sources other than, than rhythm and blues. It's sort of like stripping rock music from its roots and taking it into new directions like ambient music or electronic music or borrowing the sort of you know, free spirit of Ornette Coleman and avant-garde jazz. It could be field recordings, tape machine sampling. It, it kind of takes an anything-goes approach to what noises you want to use, and they frequently utilize improvisation and long jams and driver, driving motoric beats to, to flesh these ideas out. And so I think more than any musician, that sound creeping into Bowie's hemisphere has the most impact on shaping like not only this record but the next few records that he's about to cut well and it, and it really kind of saves him on this one because he's only got six tracks but he still has a full-length album and a lot of that is because of the ambience i mean we have we're about to talk about a three and a half minute or almost three and a half minute intro uh stay has a super long intro and outro mm -hmm. uh yeah well most of these songs uh yeah there's field recordings on the beginning of station to station there's yeah it's creatively he may not have he may have been starting to dry up in terms of what la was able to give him but he kind of just was clinging on to or not clinging on to grabbing on to the next project or the next he's making his next move which just happened to just find a sweet spot right in between where what he needed in terms of making a simple six track album and allowing it to still be great because of the style of music that he's going into. Well, I'd also read that he only came into the studio with something like two songs, you know, like a lot of these songs yeah. were, yeah. they were either written in the studio or brought to the studio and reworked so much that you wouldn't know them from the first time you heard them because they changed so drastically. So like that, I think that free flowing kind of experimentation, you know, that aspect of Kraut Rock, that's also very much here. I also view Station to Station as quite... It's a very natural progression from Young Americans. Uh, you know, the title track from that album is about falling in and out of love, you know, living for 20 years and dying for the next 50. He also becomes quite disenchanted with fame, on, obviously yeah. on the song Fame. And so these frustrations, I think, become fully realized on Station to Station, and the Thin White Duke is sort of born as a result of them. David described that character as a would-be romantic with absolutely no emotion at all. I think the no emotion part of that is maybe a bit of a facade to mask his depression and feelings of isolation, but I'll maybe elaborate on that a bit more when we dive into some of the individual tracks. So, It's Spock during Ponfar when he goes... He, every... I can't remember how many years a Vulcan has to mate or else like he explodes or something or... And yeah, Spock has to get back, but he's got no emotion, so he's a romantic for a day. <laughs> I don't know. The the, the Trek uh, fans out there will, will may, hopefully like that. <laughs> All right, so let's get into Station to Station, the title track. So Bowie said, uh, as he in in Berlin. I guess a, a year or so later, maybe two years later, uh, that he is absolutely and totally um, vulnerable by his environment. And it affects his writing tremendously to the point of absurdity at times. Um, and he looked back at, at this, like, with horror. And he thought, like, oh my goodness, like this... What, how did I pull myself out of this? You You mentioned on the last episode that there's a lot of scenarios where Bowie maybe didn't pull himself out of <laughs> out of 1975 um but yeah L la was becoming detrimental uh to him as a as a human i mean it's, it's scary enough for us to read about this I, period i can only imagine when you're the guy reading about yourself this, yeah, and yeah he doesn't allegedly remember he said that a he's lot of he, the, at least a lot of it he doesn't remember and could you imagine read like this happened? Well, and yeah. It's, it's, it's me? I think I may have heard him or read him say that he was like, oh, I made that out. They, they, they tell me that was in L.A. <laughs> or something he said. But so I think that Bowie was realizing that America was no longer inspiring him the way that 
would the way that he needed it to to be a healthy human and a healthy songwriter and so it's it's interesting that he's looking for something he's looking to move on he's looking to to Europe and uh e- even though this is the last american album that he makes for some time it's still very european in you know i mean it starts off with train noises Kind Which of a callback to Kraftwerk's Autobahn. Autobahn, yeah. right, yeah. And it's just, the transition from Young Americans to this album, it seems drastic at first until you get to maybe Golden Years, but yeah. yeah. Even the second half of this song, you know. Right, yeah, no, that one's a bit more, uh, yeah, the second half of this is totally different. Well, the feeling I get from, like, the second this song turns on is almost like all the songs we've listened to on all the previous albums were, like, one giant warm-up act. And, like, this is, like, the main event. Like, this is what we were waiting for. You know, this is, like, definitely... The, the prob- like, arguably his best song of all time, you know? Uh, yeah. It, it's, yeah it's, uh, it's up there. I mean, and it was also, like, this was a genuinely life-changing song for me. It's one of those songs where you remember where you were the first time you heard it. Uh, I was in high school when I first kind of properly discovered the track. I, I remember it quite vividly. It was during one of the winters where our parents were in Mexico. And we had the house to ourselves. And among other things, one of the opportunities this presented was for me to blast music, right? You know, there's nobody there to yell, I'm trying to sleep, or I can't hear my TV show or whatever it is. And for one reason or another, I, I took this album out of our dad's pile of records. And I'll never forget, it was during the intro, like, specifically when the the drums and guitars start to really take off, I was just like, wow, like, this is what music can be? Like, this is what rock music can be? Like, how are they making these noises? What's going on in this speaker? What's going on in that speaker? And I guess what really stuck out is, you know, most of the time when you hear a good rock song, you can kind of picture people playing it in the studio. I can picture the drummer sitting there, I can picture the guitar player over here, or whatever it is you can kind of create a realistic yeah. snapshot right, yeah, of the recording in your head. But this was one of the first songs where I was like, where did this come from? Like, hey, what, what's that noise? Are they recording in a train? <laughs> Are they on a spaceship? Is that him on the cover in the spaceship they recorded this in? Like, I can't picture rock musicians in a recording studio knocking this out. Like, this is an entirely diff- different thing. Well, the, the intro, and to get all the the guitar sounds that they did apparently slick and Bowie just stayed up. It, it was all night. Like it was middle of the night and they just kept plugging into more and more amps to sustain their notes and their feedback longer and longer. And they, it was just one mic in the room, just creating this huge ambient sound. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like the, the feedback on it is so cool. And, and the way that they capture it is so neat. Like I, I love the mix of this album. Just totally, uh, it creates. It's hard to really describe the the feeling of it. It's. I don't know how I'm gonna put. There's this. lots of long sustained notes and like droning and. Drones it's droning. Yeah, maybe on, that's yeah. the word I'm thinking of. It's a very droning song. Uh, the, the new mix, I, I'm not a fan of. It's a bit too clean. Maybe. Is that the Harry Maslin 2010? Yeah, it's a bit. It, it sounds a bit more like a conventional rock song well almost. i think they stripped it of like reverb or something because everything sounds much brighter yeah yeah well you you can almost hear the individual tracks yeah yeah i'm not a fan of it and i mean i, I kind of it was interesting to play it and once again like i talk about this a lot with mixes i i'm not opposed to alternative mixes because then it's like it's something else just in case i ever wanted to hear that so it's, it's cool that it exists but i'm with you and that i don't think i having played it the one time i don't think i've ever really had any inclination to go back to it my thought on remixed albums is in order to make it worth people listening to, you have to make it different. Of course. Now, how much does that impact the actual art of mixing when you're thinking like, well, I'm, I'm going to do something to make it different and not to do like what I think is right for the mix. Like, you know, if you're going in and mixing an album that you've never heard before, that's a different story. But I mean, Harry Maslin produced this album, so mm-hmm. he's going into this going, what can I do a bit different? He's not going into it thinking, like, how do I mix this album? Yeah. And and I think that's where a lot of remixes kind of just, like, it's almost too alternative to the original, mm-hmm. where, like, you have to set yourself apart from the first one. So, yeah, I, I don't know. Like, it's one of those things, that, yeah, just don't listen to it. Listen to the original if you want. Well, which that's is, why I, yeah. I never complain about it, because it's like right. nobody's taking the original away Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so starts off that there's two parts to this song. There's the 
well, I guess there's kind of three parts to this song. There's this, are there four? There's the, the, the noises for the first minute and a, and a bit. And then there's the intro. And then there's the return of the thin white Duke part. And then there's like a kind of conventional pop song that, you know, it, it cuts into the, mm-hmm. once there were mountains and mountains, mountains on mountains, isn't it? Once there were mountains on mountains. Yeah. yeah. Um, oh, what a song. Yeah, how do we start to break this one down? Uh, yeah, it's so hard. I mean, I can only really, I guess, start with just talking about how it impacted me when I first heard it and how, how important that kind of was for me. I, I guess this song also arrived at the right time and came to me at a pivotal moment in my life. You know, like I said, I was in high school at the time. I think I was in like grade 10, probably. You know, I was probably beginning to experience things like stress for the first time in my life or having my first real bouts with stress. You know, I think at that age, you really begin to have a conscious understanding of things like self-doubt, right? It's like it's the age where everything happens. You're in school, you're worried about your perception, you're thinking about grades, and I'm on the football team, and, you know, you're thinking about girls, drugs, alcohol. You know, there's a million things being thrown at you at once when you're, you know, 15 or however old I was. What are you going to be when you grow up? It all kind of hits you like a ton of bricks. And, you know, it's also a period in my life where I was really starting to crave, like, independence, which is probably something you can attest to. I've always been an an extroverted person, but simultaneously, I think, very independent. And and maybe it's because Bowie was really tapping into the idea of, like, isolation on this album. And maybe it's because, you know, I had the house to myself, like I mentioned earlier, and all this time to reflect. I don't know for sure, but something about the song just spoke to me in a way that a song hadn't really spoken to me before. It's interesting, yeah. The, the way the guitar bends, it's got kind of a lag. It's very disjointed. You know, the do-do, you know, it sounds very disturbed. And, you know, I just became obsessed with it, and I played it for weeks on end. And I guess when I finally wore it out, it probably served as like a gateway for me to get into other music that either resembles it in some way or pushed the rock and roll envelope in a similar fashion. But, I mean, that intro, I mean, like I said, I'll just never forget. It was just so encapsulating, and uh, I almost relive that moment. I mean, I don't relive that moment every time I hear that song, but it doesn't lose its special touch the the way that it did to me the first time I heard it. So I take it you don't listen to the uh, single version? Not at all. (laughs) Ever. (laughs) Yeah, no. I I know I talk about alternate mixes I don't have a problem with, but that one, I, I I like to pretend that one just doesn't exist. Yeah. It doesn't deserve a spot. The, si- the single mix just starts with the pop part, which is... A- also very abrupt and awkward, too. Like, not only am I missing dum, the first half, but it's dum, that's dum, not dum. how it was supposed... No. A song's not supposed to start that way, either. No. <laughs> like, hey, where did that come from? It's just, it's... Yeah. We need the build-up. That, ma- that's the point of that part of the song, is that there was a build-up before it. Yeah. Uh, so, Station to Station uh, was about the uh, Stations of the Cross, uh, th- you know, the, the pictures or the images that depict Jesus's final day uh, before his crucifixion, not driving from station to station, uh, you know, like a train station or whatever, despite having train noises at the beginning of the song. <laughs> um, but when I read that years ago, that it wasn't you know, that it was about Jesus. Uh, then the whole drive like a demon from station to station took on a whole other meaning or just like, it just became that much darker. Like, you know, I, I, I took it literal. Like you're driving like a demon from station to station, like you're racing through life or whatever. But then it, when I realized like, Oh no, like you're from the different stages of Jesus's final day. It just like, it shows where he was at, at that time. It was a lot darker than I originally thought. And that's when this song kind of hit me for the first time was like, Oh, there's a lot more to be uncovered here. And I think maybe like a song like this is what got me listening to lyrics more aside from being, you know, a a Dylan fan who can, you know, spot the obvious that like, Hey, like, you know, visions of Johanna is a great song or whatever, but like, yeah, it got me just to dig a bit deeper. I think this, this song anyway, was part of that. I think the central line on this song, which helps kind of paint the picture of exactly what it is that Station to Station means, or at least maybe what it means to me, but it's the line where he says, here we are, one magical movement from Kether to Malkuth. Now, this is a reference to Jewish mysticism in the Kabbalistic Tree of Life. And in, in that tree, there's 10 divine emanations that sort of flow together, and I guess they can metaphorically be looked at as the stations. That's why he's saying station to station. Mm -hmm. 
Now, the first emanation on the tree is Kether, which sits at the top of the tree, and it's kind of referred to as, like, the crown. It represents divine will and pure lights. And Malkuth is the tenth and final emanation. It sits at the bottom of the tree. And Malkuth, I guess, in Western terms, is, is like the, the kingdom. It's the nurturing receptacle of Kether. It's, it's the receptacle of the pure light from the crown. Now, whenever he does this song live, you'll notice he does like a top-to-bottom motion with his hands when he's singing that line to kind of further illustrate this because, I mean, it's quite foreign to most of us, right? right I've yeah. never heard of this. And yeah. Actually, there's a great photo of David from this period that most listeners are probably familiar with where he's drawing the Tree of Life. I'll show it to you yeah. here. You've probably seen this one before, right? Yeah, he's in the, the outfit he wears in the Lazarus video. Right, yeah, it's the one he's got the black crop top and he's covered in diagonal silver, silver stripes. Lines, yeah. And yeah, that's what he's wearing when he's backing into yeah, the closet in the, in the Lazarus video. Uh, but I guess to make a long story short, the, the song really doesn't have anything to do, like you were saying, with trains, right? It's not about literal trains. Like, sure, there's the noise at the beginning and the song and album are called Station to Station, but that's merely a metaphor. The stations are those divine emanations of, I guess, like of the infinite or whatever, right? This isn't a, a physical quest. This is like a, a mystical or a spiritual one. And Bowie or the Thin White Duke or whoever the narrator is, he's maneuvering through these stations in an attempt to find himself or to find his true will or whatever it is he's after. And the reason I think this album and this song in particular sounds so dark and sounds so isolated is because he's failing, right? He says he's lost in his circle and... I think for a lot of people, or maybe I'll just speak for myself, but I think that's exactly why I'm drawn to this album when I'm feeling a bit down because I'm kind of going more or less through those same motions and maybe not thinking specifically about it from the perspective of like Jewish mysticism, but in the roundabout way, I'm still connected to that core feeling of like disappointment or unfulfillment. Right. And, and the failing could feel like, uh, like him when he's singing quicksand, how he was failing and, in his own mind now he's failing in this world too it's almost like if you know he was afraid of going mad in 72 and he quite literally is now so i I think those songs draw on a lot of there's a lot of parallels there it's also interesting when he says it's not the side effects of the cocaine i'm thinking that it must be love he he says love in a very interesting way he like he can't say it It's almost like this character is unable to say the word love or to feel love. Like he said that the Thin White Duke was a romantic without any emotion. I I always thought that that delivery was intentional uh, in more than just the sonic way. Um, Speaking about that part of the song, I guess the the pop part. Like, man, like what a what what like a rocking song. Like you, you don't expect to hear that after the intro, but. That on its own, like, I know the intro is means a lot to you especially, and, and I like it a lot too, but on its own, the the second half of this song is absolutely incredible. The I'm, tr- I'm trying to think on the spot of what, what to call it. It's just... Not an easy song to do that with, is it? <laughs> it kicks ass. It just absolutely kicks ass. There isn't... I, I guess what I'm trying to say, and I've been struggling to sum up my thoughts on this one, is there's really nothing like this song. You know, there aren't many 10-minute songs that I put on playlists regularly and listen to as much as I listen to this one. Um, yeah, I, I've got written down here, uh, top 10 alert. Uh, it's definitely in, in, my, in the top 10 for well, me. It's definitely incomparable, too. I know what you mean by there's nothing like this. I mean, first of all, could, at the top of your head, who's another pop star that's, like, referenced the Kabbalistic tree of life yeah, in, in no. a song before, yeah. you know? And I think that the fact that Bowie always has such complex and mystical themes. That's probably a big reason as to why his art at large is always so fascinating. You know, because he's always doing things and he's always interested in things that people either aren't also interested in, or if they are interested in it, it's not really making its way into their music the way it does for Bowie. Because I'm sure there are a lot of people who have, you know, I think actually Ariana Grande and like Madonna have referred to, you know, Jewish mysticism, but they've never really, at least not that I'm aware of, work it into a song this interesting way. yeah wow like uh slick's solo it kind of goes a little bit chuck berry at one point 
helm the play like Chuck Berry at oh. some point. I think I might have read that. Maybe. Or maybe it. I just heard the Chuck. Yeah, it definitely is Chuck Berry going It's on interesting there. how he's going, okay, feedback, uh, this. Uh, uh, Chuck Berry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> get a little bit of this in there, too. Yeah, it's de- I mean, he's definitely very confused. His, his mind is definitely going at a you know a, a mile a minute. Um, he, he's he's dipping back into the Crowley tree again, or dip into the Crowley well again. Yeah. He, he references uh, making sure white stains, white stains. I mean, I'm not familiar with it, but that's the, that's the title of one of Crowley's works. Right. And uh, it's it's all a part of this of the Thin White Duke's mystical quest and. Uh, yeah, like eventually the song does explode into that that once there were mountains part, and you know, gotta keep searching, keep searching. Oh, what, it's so what, good. What will I be believing? Who will connect me with love? But I think ultimately at the end, who will connect me with love, and what will I be believing? This is all sort of like a, a fool's errand because as he winds up revealing, it's too late. Right. And it's kind of hopeless. It's kind of a nihilistic ending, even though the song's a little bit happier in that point it does seem like a hopeless ending. And I, I think that would accurately summarize what David Bowie was living through and why he needed to break free from Los Angeles because it was a dead end. Right. It, it, it's just, there's nothing for him here. It, it's too late. He, he keeps searching, but I don't think he's going to find anything when he's in this mindset and when he's, when, when he's doing what he's doing here. Well, and if I didn't know any better, I would have looked at uh, it's too late and and... I will let the day pass without her and, and all that kind of stuff. Like he was going through like a divorce with Angie at this time or, or the beginnings of it. Maybe uh, they, they're not married much longer after this. Uh, just going off the top of my head. I don't think anyway, but I do know better. And, and he, like that relationship wasn't really causing him much stress. I don't think, or at least the, not in the conventional sense, maybe. Yeah. Like they were still married, but like I remember, so for the next song, I was for Golden Years. I was reading that he sang that to her on the phone, right? And so it's kind of been suspected. Oh, maybe this is a, this song was written about her, but then the biographers have always sort of been like, well, that's unlikely because their relationship was way too rocky for him yeah. to be writing such a. So yeah, they're they're together, but probably yeah. not in that capacity at this point. You know, the, yeah, they're they're definitely at the tail end of things, right? But um, yeah, I mean, like you, you said. What, what were you saying? Did you say top 10 or something yeah, alert? Yeah. You said top 10 alert. Oh, yeah. Whenever I, I'm writing my notes down, I put top 10 alert next to songs that are definitely near my top 10. It's impossible for me to think of, okay, what's in my David Bowie top 10 and not, not have this song immediately be the yeah. first one that pops in my mind. Like This quite possibly is my favorite David Bowie song of all time. And I don't think that's much of a bold statement. I think a lot of people feel the same It'd way. It'd be bold to not put it in there, perhaps, more than to put it in. Like, like, during the intro, I mean, there isn't a wasted second or a note that wasn't played at, like, the absolute perfect time. Like, each little drum hit is so precise and perfect, and I'm guessing you're probably the same as me in the sense that, like, I can memorize every single part that yeah. every single instrument plays. Like, I know I, when the piano's going to join, I know when the bass starts. I know when the return of the Thin White Duke's going to come. Yeah. The, the, the feedback starts to swell for the second time, not the first time, the second time. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. it's one of those songs where, like, you know every exact noise they're going to make every time they make one, and they're all perfect. Every little detail is perfect, and that's not a word I like to throw out a lot, perfect. I'm not even sure perfection truly exists, but fuck me if you didn't come close to it on this song. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like... Even if it's about what it's about, like, oh, man. Like, he says, uh, drink to the men who protect you and I. That's got to be fascism coming in. He's thinking about militaries and stuff. Uh I just had one other little note here, and it was that his his work is a product of his consumption, like what he's consuming in terms of what he's reading and what he's watching. Apparently, he's watching a lot of German expressionism uh, films, stuff like we've mentioned how many times on this podcast, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari and Nosferatu and stuff like that. And the things that he was reading... Um, you know, yeah, like I'd mentioned, you know, the uh, secret history of Christianity books and books on the occult and defense of magic and, you know, the the story of the witches coming to get him and he had to get his pool cleaned out and he was saving his piss in jars and toenail clippings and all kinds of weird shit. Those are all the things that may or may not be true or maybe somewhat mm-hmm. true or maybe not at all, but... You know, this is what he was consuming, and you, you get some weird lyrics because of it, and you get some weird 
quotes in the media because of it. But I mean, I'm I consume weird horror movies on a regular basis, and I'd probably raise a lot of questions if I was <laughs> if I wrote songs based on what I'm consuming in terms of you know media. So I don't know. Well, and for all the same reasons that you watch horror movies and stuff like that, I think those are the reasons why we really like this song, right? And for all the same reasons that I think, like, The Empire Strikes Back is the best Star Wars movie, right? Like, they're, The Empire's horrible. In real life, I but would they, never be pulling for them, they right? they win. And yeah, I think, it's, like... It's interesting. And they're, they're kind of, you know, like, you're... There's something about you that pulls for the bad guy in, in a movie every now and again, and I guess, like, the best way to deal with, like, your angers and frustrations is to kind of live them out in science fiction. You know, you're actually not submerging yourself into anything evil, you know, so I, I don't really feel guilty for liking the Thin White Duke period because, you know, it's all it's socially acceptable to cheer for Tony Soprano and for Walter White and Stringer Bell and Avon Barksdale and all of them, right? Yeah. I kind of lump the Thin White Duke into that category. Yeah, that makes sense. Of of, of why you know you enjoy them and you, it's kind of like a guilty pleasure, like yeah, this, this right, liking I, this character and liking this album or liking this song. Although Bowie was real. <laughs> Because that's the main difference. But, yeah, well, no, it, you cheer for the, like, you want, like, like, yeah, I watch horror movies because it's intriguing and because, like, the 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 horror of it or the it's the, it's the, the sound, yeah it's, yeah, it's like I'm not cheering for David Bowie, the person who's into fascism. I'm cheering in, I'm cheering for the sound. Yeah. Like, this is a very kind of evil-sounding intro to this song, and I think I connect that sound with those characters or that regime in Star Wars. You know, it's kind of kind of cool it's kind of badass yeah. but i used to we used to have encyclopedias uh when i was a kid like a really young kid i was like five or six or something and i remember i used to look at the water at, like and bridges because it looked dangerous it, i remember thinking the pictures looked scary i remember thinking like imagine if you fell off of that weird looking bridge because they'd show all kinds of weird suspension bridges and strange things. And I remember just like, I became obsessed with looking through the encyclopedia for scary images at a very young age. And I think that's the same drive that I have to watch horror or to listen to station to station or to like, and I think that's why I understand why Bowie read up on such strange, eerie things during this time. I guess like a, liking a song like this or liking horror movies is almost like the temptation of like the hot element. Yes. Where it's got the or, the yeah, orange coils. Exactly. And you oh. know, you know, it's bad, but like people touch it anyway. <laughs> I, remember, I remember again, when I was a kid looking at one of those, we had one of those old coil element stoves. I remember looking at it with dad and we both said like, yeah, I, yeah, I want to touch. He's like, but don't like, that's funny. You mentioned that. But I, I think I would draw the line, like, I've never, like, I'm, I'm into horror movies, I'm into, you know, cheering for the bad guy in TV shows and stuff like that, but I, I don't think I can justify the, the collecting Nazi memorabilia. I mean, no, that's, I mean, you yeah. draw a line somewhere, no, and that's, that not only is that past the line, it's, like, so far removed from the line. Yeah. Like. No, we, I, there's no room for uh, that kind of sympathy. <laughs> anywhere, so, yeah. And it's unfortunately been kind of making its way back into, uh. Oh. Yeah, but, the, the headlines. There was a, a few that were involved in that trucker convoy here in Canada that were waving Confederate flags and waving Nazi flags, and you know, you you think that it's in the past, right? Like, oh, that's so long ago. But if you really think about it, like that was the '40s. Like, people our age, their parents' parents were our age right. during that period. Yeah, that's not many generations. It's not. No, we all know people in our lifetime that they were our age during that period. So it, it, it is very scary to think that that's still not quite removed from, you know, the people's thoughts and beliefs, you know, that it is yeah. unfortunately very, not, not, not very prominent, but it's still there. It's there. And it's, uh, apparently, uh, civil American civil war widows were still living like in our lifetime. They like would marry. Apparently, they had really good pensions, and they you could pass it to your spouse. So, like, eighteen-year-old women were marrying like ninety-year-old men for their Civil War pension. Like, the last oh ones God. died like in in my lifetime. Like, <laughs> so yeah, if that you can draw those connections. And I think that's why it's always rubbed me the wrong way. And people say, "Oh, that's in the past. You quit living in the past." It's like, but it's first of all, that's stupid to begin with because it happened. 
and you can't just pretend it didn't happen by going it's a long time ago. But it's also not a long time ago. No, right. It, it isn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, David Bowie's part of the baby boom, right, that came from that period. Yep. So, I mean, it's not like this is a... It's not like it's ancient or anything. No. You know, we're, talking, we're not talking about ancient Rome here. We're talking about something less than a, de- uh, less than a century ago. Yeah. Anyway. Uh, oh, one, one last thing. Uh, throwing darts in lovers' eyes to totally change the subject. Uh, are, are those the lovers from Young Americans? Uh, is it, is maybe. He, you know, the, from the song Young Americans? Because yeah. I've always kind of looked at this as an extension of the Young Americans album, but it's taken on a much more darker twist. And yeah, he's kind of like, possibly, yeah. He was singing about the young lovers, and now he's throwing darts in their eyes, and mocking them because he's the thin white duke is such a bad person, or yeah, a, you know. or like mocking the superficial nature of their love to begin with, or I don't know, <laughs> the yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's probably another metaphor that I haven't unpacked. I mean, I don't think he's literally thinking about taking a dart and throwing it in their eyes. There might be something else going on there with what exactly that means, but I haven't taken the time to figure out a lot of the stuff. I don't even think David Bowie's taken the time to figure this stuff Probably out. Probably not. So, <laughs> you know, if, if you don't understand something, don't feel bad because yeah. the creator doesn't even remember it. Bowie created Golden Years before shooting um, The Man Who Fell to Earth. So it was the first composition for this album uh, coming off a another funky song. Uh, fame was, I guess, the song he wrote before this, right? It would have been Fame, then Golden Years, and it's definitely a continuation of that sound, of that style of music. Uh, and he creates another, a great sibling of, of Fame, I think. Yeah, like, it's very uh, repetitive-like Fame. It's very funky-like Fame. Where it takes its takes on its own identity, I guess, is that there's a, a little bit more structural complexity. I, I know, like, the bars are a bit more uneven at times. Like, sometimes the bridge is two bars, sometimes it's six. But I think where it really gets its station-to-station flavor and distances itself from the, the straight soul sound of Young Americans is in its craftwork influence. Uh, the guitars on this song have a cycling progression, which is very common, or a very common feature in Krautrock. Specifically, this song has an F-sharp chord, which downshifts to an E major on the third beat of each bar, right? Yeah. And Bowie certainly acknowledged this influence. Uh, several years later, he referred to it as an incredible sound that was half craftwork, half American soul, an amazing, incongruous juxtaposition. And I think that's hitting the nail on the head, in my opinion, because Station to Station is perhaps the most literal transitional album in his entire discography. I think it's the closest he ever got to having an album that sounded like a perfect 50-50 split between the last LP and the next one. Right, yeah. Like this is this is it. Half part Young Americans, half part Low, and I don't know if it's exactly 50-50, but I think it's the closest he ever got to it. Yeah, the, I mean, I, I would think this one feels a lot more uh, American. This song feels a lot more American than it does European, mainly because, like, the tone of the guitar playing... The style of the guitar playing it it, it it creates the feel of a soul or of an R and B funk song, as where the maybe the the structural composition of it is taking from you know the Krautrock style. But yeah, I mean it 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 creates a perfect riff, like absolutely perfect. Um, and you in terms of the lyrical content, how many songs that sound like this chant "Run for the shadows." Like, run for the shadows. What a line. Well, I think that's also what separates it from Young Americans, is that it takes that sinister turn. Yeah. Because Golden Years, that just sounds like something that would have been on Young Americans. Right, And most of the lyric would have been on Young Americans also, but, you know, there's not really a character on Young Americans like there is on Station to Station, but whoever the narrator is, they wouldn't really warn you to run for the shadows like the Thin White Duke does, right? So that's kind of that that spin on Young America, or the, the Station to Station spin on the Young American sound once again. Yeah. War and Peace uh, sang some parts of this. Apparently Bowie was trying to do all the vocals, but he fell ill. Um, I'm not sure what they mean by fell ill. Maybe he just fell down. I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> Yeah, Mr. Mr. Peace, a.k.a. McCormick, uh, filled in on a lot of those what what was and stuff. I, th- I think some other parts might have been him too. I've never actually listened for 
trying to decipher what parts were him and what parts weren't. But yeah, because I'd only discovered that recently, and I always thought it was just Bowie doing everything. But yeah. he does a good job of singing uh, "War and Peace." He said Bowie wanted it to sound very loose and casual, and that's probably my favorite part of the vocal arrangement. Yeah, uh, yeah, it is like, loose. Th- these simpler and more repetitive style funk songs, you know, like Fame and like this one, you know, th- there's a lot of room left on them for the singing to be fun and all over the place. Like you mentioned, there's the wah-wah-wahs, there's whistling, that kind of ad-libbing freestyle spirit and, and swagger of some of those young American tracks is, is also still here. I think that's something that he's brought back with him to this album. Yeah, I love the falsetto parts that he kind of s- screeches into. Oh, uh, the, the angel! Yeah, it's great, yeah. yeah. Uh, apparently he wrote this with Elvis in mind um, to, to sing it. Uh, there were apparently even preliminary talks between uh, like management. Uh, they were both RCA records. He would have been just down the hall. Yeah. Right, yeah. And uh, it, it quickly dissolved. I don't know if, if Colonel Parker just kind of said, nope and that was it or, or what, but that would have been neat, a Bowie and Elvis collab, uh, and I could definitely see it being this one. I, I don't know if he actually wrote this for Elvis or not, but I could see it. He sounds like Elvis. It's kind of like that voice he was using back on Janine, all the way back on the Space uh, Janine, the album. Janine, yeah. Anyway, Elvis wrote him a note, uh, wished him good luck on his next tour or something like that, and much later... Decades later, Bowie said, mentioned it and said, I kept that note forever kind of thing. Just kind of neat. So Bo- so Elvis did listen to Bowie, perhaps. Or maybe he just knew that he existed. I always kind of wondered, like, I mean, Elvis only had... Uh, he might not have written that letter. He only know. had about two and a half years to go. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Good point. Uh, I, I could definitely see him writing this with Elvis in mind because that's what a lot of this album is. It's a callback to some more traditional stuff. And then he, he blends that with the future. I know there was a few, like, there was a couple old doo-wop songs or something that he was also, I can't remember the names of them, but he was kind of nicking stuff from old songs and old styles. I mean, that, that like I said, that's the, the story of this album, right? It's, yeah. It's not out with the old and in with the new, it's, it's both. Yeah. Kind of mixed in a blender, and uh, I think that's kind of like the identity of the album. And it's, it's kind of why it's a, it's a very unique one and a, and a very, very good album. This is a great song to play with headphones because you have the rhythm in the left speaker and the lead guitar in the right. I never really owned a good pair of headphones until my girlfriend got me a a pair of noise-canceling Audio-Technicas for Christmas like five years ago or something, and that's something I can't recommend enough for most music fans, but especially someone that's a fan of an artist as calculated as David Bowie because there's parts of certain songs that I hadn't even noticed from listening on speakers for years, and then when I put the headphones on, it became more noticeable. And it might blow your mind from time to time, assuming you, you don't already listen with headphones. So if you're going to listen to an album on headphones, make it this one. Cool, yeah. Yeah. They, they come at, you know, the, the guitars are just coming at you at different, from different spots. You know? Lou, Lou Reed, New York, is another cool one for that. Yeah. He plays on one oh, side yeah. the whole time. and Yeah, yeah. I, I don't... I didn't. I you know it's funny. I've never listened to it with headphones though. But I've sat in front of. We're in my basement right now. I've sat right there, in between both speakers, and put them in, and then <laughs> listened. And it, it's yeah, it's fun. Uh, Golden Years was the lead single on this album, backed with uh, "Can You Hear Me." Interesting choice for a B side, but nonetheless, he did it on. This was the one he did on Soul Train, right? Yeah. And he was apparently drunk during he it was, or something? Yeah. Uh, I shouldn't say apparently. He, doesn't, he, he was, looks the part for sure. He, yeah, it, it's not uh, It's not pretty. Uh, maybe we'll put it... Uh, I, we always say we'll tweet it out, but we should put start putting the, the links in the show notes underneath. Um, yeah, you got if you haven't seen that, you got to check out the Soul Train performance. He was... I think he was only the second white performer on Soul Train. Elton John was on previous to him. And then, yeah, this song. Wow, I, I, for some reason, thought that he was the first. No, Elton was on, uh, I think, a couple of months before. Oh, okay. Yeah. Or so one of the first, I guess, yeah. is maybe what I'd seen. Yeah. Uh, we're at the last song on the side already. Already, we've been talking for about Station to Station for half an hour. Well, we're on, like, the fifth song, because Station to Station is three songs. Right, And Golden yeah. Years is the fourth. And Side A ends with Word on a Wing. So Word on a Wing was 
a cry for help, as he, I think, has said several times. Um, he was really struggling while re- or filming The Man Who Fell to Earth, and that's when he was, I think, composing this song, was during the filming of that. And he he said this is a, lit- a literal cry for help. It's, it, it's, it's one of his most, uh, I guess, religious songs, too. Well, something I alluded to on Young Americans when we were discussing Somebody Up There Likes Me is that it was maybe the music that ultimately would, I guess, sort of save David from the destructive path he was on. And I can see that maybe coming to fruition on a track like this. Like you said, he was going through a really hard time during the, the set of The Man Who Fell to Earth and uh, and wrote this song because of that. And, and he referred to this song as being a source of protection, something that he needed to produce from within himself to safeguard himself. And I don't know exactly what he needed protection from, but as we know and we've discussed several times, this was a very manic period for him. Some of the stories are beyond all logical comprehension. And, you know, like around this time, he had allegedly hired a a witch to help him with a a group or a coven of satanic witches that he thought were trying to steal his semen in order to breed a devil child. What a great quote from Chris O'Leary's book is he says that this is the perils of doing cocaine and watching Rosemary's Baby once too often. Yeah, I read that too, which is, yeah, (laughs) that's a... That's one of the greatest you, movies of all time. Have you seen that one? No, and I, I've been meaning to. Oh, it's like I, I, top ten alert, top ten movie <laughs> of all, like ugh, top five movie of all time. Um, yeah. I've seen, like, I know that's like the, uh, it's influenced movies that I've watched. Anytime I read about a movie that I've watched, it mentions Rosemary's Baby. Okay, yeah. And it's just like one that I, I need to see. Yeah, but. it's top shelf. So anyway, I mean, I, I don't really believe in witchcraft or that he succeeded in exercising the witches away or that they were even there in the first place, but I do believe that songwriting was probably not only something that kept him productive and occupied, but also had a way of maybe putting his mind at ease. Well, I think he was he was looking, turning to the light to try to save him from these this paranoia that was consuming him. And, and to make a song like this, like, that you know was getting him closer to the light and to to make this song i think he probably felt that if he needed protection that this would serve as like a layer of protection it's something to shield him yeah. mentally from the inner demons he was battling uh he was trying to change the tv with his mind he said so like he was sitting there trying to change the channel wondering if he could do it like yeah like jeez he was really he was going through it <laughs> yeah um but a beautiful song. Very, very pleasant. Um, we've not mentioned the title of our show, Fantastic Voyage, but it kind of reminds me of Fantastic Voyage The in terms of the, like, sonically, anyway. I get the same feeling when I listen to these songs. I've always kind of grouped these two together. If I was making a playlist of songs that sound similar by Bowie, these two would be in the same pool well i'm guessing if they sound similar because apparently this isn't a common thing i'm going to guess it is fantastic voyage a song that's in b flat i don't know it's not okay well the, the reason i'm mentioning that is because uh this song starts off in b flat which is a, like it's a very low key and it's uncommon or you would probably know better than me but i've heard it's a very uncommon key for a rock song to be in yeah and yeah, you uh don't really playing b flat very often so that key repeats all the way at the beginning from the in this age of grand illusion you walked into my life out of my dreams all the way to sweet name you're born once again for me but where the magic i guess really starts happening in the chord progression and i and i suppose this is what starting out in b flat allows you to do is that when he starts singing lord i kneel and offer you my word on a wing he's switched to d flat and when he gets to the i'm trying hard to fit in your scheme of things it's a pivot to A.
I think that's such clever chord sequencing because as you'll notice in the clip, this it just it keeps building up, right? Yeah, it yeah. just never gives up, and what that represents is like an ascension, right? Yeah. Which of course is perfect for a hymn or a, a plea to God or whatever you want to call this song. And and all the while we also get this droning organ in the background, so it, it really sounds like you're ascending and it sounds like you're at church. It just keeps climbing, right? And, and it's another unconventional choice for a chord change once again or for a chord sequence, which has just become par for the course for Bowie at this point. He's not writing rock songs anymore, and he's not singing like a rock singer anymore. He sounds like an opera singer in this song. I've always thought that he could have... When I oh, Okay, Bowie can do opera too. Of course he can. He was also hanging out with uh, Klaus Nomi a bit later on, right? They did a, a collaboration together. Maybe right, closer yeah, to yeah. Lodger. I mean, he obviously, Klaus Nomi, is, he did the whole operatic thing. He's a great artist, too. But, yeah, I mean, this is, like like you said, a beautiful, gorgeous song. And something that's kind of fascinating to me, and perhaps what makes this similar to the title track, Station to Station, and why this album is maybe a bit more cohesive than it appears. Like, some might say it's all over the place, and these songs are certainly different. But... There are these sort of like religious similarities and the lyrical themes, but I guess sonically where they're maybe uh, more similar than people might think is that they both rely on like keeping a note playing for a really long time, right? Like there's the, the slick guitar intro where he's holding something for a very long time and there's the drone that kind of plays over this song. I, I think, and you had mentioned that the production on this album is great, and I think that might be part of it, is that he... Bowie was really obsessed with like drone on this album, and yeah. even when the songs are, are they differ sonically, there, there's there's a little there's some kind of things that are still similar yeah. about them. Yeah, I don't have much else uh, on this one, but I really really like this song. Yeah, the the vocal performance is definitely the highlight of this song for me. It's very good, and like Bitten's great on it the yeah the the song is is fine it's like it's really really good but it's uh like it's a top 50 bowie song for me i think it's uh well we don't really talk about favorite songs on the album maybe as much as we should yeah to highlight our favorites i'm kind of thinking about that yeah well i think especially for an album this short we could probably limit it to like three or something but i mean obviously i said station to station is like probably his best song and this would be another one. Uh, this is definitely another one of my favorites on the album. I, I, I don't know if... Like, you know, I, I say that about every song on this album. <laughs> every. I, I think I can... Like, I prefer Word on a Wing to Golden Years. It's not particularly close. And that's not a slight to Golden Years. Yeah. But, I mean, this is, this is a special song I to me. I think... Yeah, I, I, I like this one a bit more than Golden Years. But, for... I, I mean, the thing is, is Golden Years isn't like uh an, an, an epic like this one kind of is you know like it's like uh i i wouldn't say that i want to hold your hand is better than strawberry fields or something you know what i mean like it's it, it feels like they're two different they're trying to accomplish two different things um golden years is a to me it's a perfect song but mm-hmm. it's just not as good as this one there's a song on the next side, which I don't think is also trying to achieve too much, but that would be my third favorite. And you'll have to wait and see which one that is. Yeah. But so I, th- I, I do think that there are songs that aren't epics that I'll still like almost as much as epics. Right. Because yeah. I, well, and I'm probably going to, yeah. If, if we're talking about the same song on side B, uh, it's up there for one of my favorite Bowie songs of all time. So stay tuned. But yeah, so, I mean, this is definitely one of my favorite songs on the album, and I think one of the main reasons for that is for, you had mentioned the vocal performance, which is great, and, you know, I think what you can just really hear the desperation and despair in his voice on this song. It sounds very genuine, and he sounds very desperate for that connection to God. He, but he still is very skeptical, though, right? Like, he's not coming in sounding naive either, like... There's a line in the first chorus where he says, just because I don't believe don't mean I don't think as well. As in, sure, I'm making, a, I'm making a plea to you here and I really want to connect with you, but I'm not willing to fall over for you blindly. You know, like this relationship is going to have to be a, a two-way street. And that's something I've always been impressed by. It's with a great the, standard to set. <laughs> like, hey, wait, wait a minute here. 
That's that's funny. Yeah. And it's, it's it's kind of incredible to me that you know even during his darkest and roughest times he was always able to maintain a certain degree of intelligence. And I guess that skepticism, that that kind of wait a minute here moment, I think his sort of skepticism of religion will, will reach its peak on Heathen on a, on a track like A Better Future, yes. which is a, another great track. But yeah, his relationship with religion has always been, you know, he's not willing to kill, he's not really willing to be naive and fall over blindly to it. Right. Yeah. He's also from that generation where Christianity was like in the midst of its downfall, it, it, just in terms of like, I'm not talking in terms of its credibility, but in terms of its popularity. Yeah. Like when... You know, John Lennon says the Beatles are more popular than Jesus. To kids, it's kind of like... These guess, are the kids now. Yeah. yeah. I think yeah. Bowie's maybe closer to his age. But it is this generation that's kind of starting to not well, John care about it as too. much. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Oh, and there we are. We've mentioned the Beatles uh, twice I think, now. I think, I think you've mentioned yeah. them yeah, a few, <laughs> few times. But And what's funny, too, is that this is definitely a religious song. But when I was listening to it... Uh, on my balcony this this last summer, uh, my girlfriend said it would be great. Like, wouldn't this be great for, like, our wedding? Like, is this a love song? And I was about to be like, yeah, it is. But I was like, well, wait a minute. No, it's actually not really a love song at all. But musically, it really does resemble one. Yeah. Like, it just, it, like, I think the first time I heard this song, when he says, sweet name, you're born once again to me, I thought he was saying sweet, sweet. angel. I thought he was saying sweet angel, too. And yeah. so when you're sitting there and listening to it passively, like, I think... That's probably, funny you thought we thought the same yeah. thing. And we also have always owned, I think, shoddy Dynaflex pressings of a lot of these albums, where there's a lot of reverb and... It kind of doesn't... You can't hear the lyrics as clearly. Like, if you're going to listen to the Harry Maslin mix, you probably won't have any lyrics misinterpreted. Well, you won't mishear anything on that mix. And on that note, um, he this is the first time he didn't print lyrics on an album. He had always printed his lyrics on inner sleeves. He didn't do it on this one. So there's... Yeah, and I actually read the handwritten lyrics to this song for the first time, like, recently. And I always thought it was in this age of grand illusion but it's Grand Delusion. Oh, well, that's news to me. I think I was singing that line earlier, and I said Grand Delusion. Well, I always thought that too, but... D- Did, I, does it change from uh, well, verse to verse? The maybe? writing was Delusion, and now I just hear that every time, and it's like, oh yeah, he's, he's saying Delusion. Um, oh, that reminds me. For the longest time, you know the song Twisting the Night Away by Sam Cooke? Yes. Where he says, Dancing with the Chicken Slacks? Yes. I thought it was chicken slacks. Like pants that have chickens on them? Yeah, I thought it was a crazy <laughs> pants party. For the longest time, I thought, holy shit, like Sam Cooke knows how to party, man. But then I realized, like, oh, like a chicken slacks in the 50s was, like, you know, ooh, risky. Like, what would chicken slacks look like? Would they have pictures of chickens imprinted on them? Or I don't know. They like, made out of, like, chicken feathers I, I, There was a something? lot of things going through my head. Yeah, I thought maybe just, like, raw chicken skin or something. Oh, I, you... yeah, I, I don't know. All right, we're at an hour and... <laughs> <laughs> three songs for a three track side yeah. i mean but you know what i always knew this album is short as it well it's not a short album but it's because these songs are so long and a lot of them are kind of are epics it just there's so much meat on the bone i ne- i didn't think that these were going to be like half an hour episodes no. because there's just so much to talk about. i mean we mentioned station to station practically is three songs yeah so yeah a lo- uh, lot to talk about on the next side as well so stay tuned and uh Catch us next week, but I think until then, unless you had anything else to add, I believe we're signing off. We're signing off. Uh, thank you for helping me pick the outro song to record, too. I did it last night. Um, although you weren't much help. You picked, <laughs> yeah. It was a tie. It was two songs. So uh, here it is. I'm Jesse. And I'm John. Thanks for listening. Yeah.